0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. The paper I wanted to go over is a paper that made the rounds on Twitter. It's called Effect of Nasal Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, Effect of Nasal CPAP, Versus Heated, Humidified, High-Flow Nasal Cannula on Feeding Intolerance in Preterm Infants with Respiratory Distress Syndrome, the Interis Randomized Clinical Trial. First author is Francisco Crezi. It's in JAMA Network Open, and the data is coming to us out of Italy so hello to my friends in Italy I'm actually planning on going actually yeah I'm hoping that I'm going to make it to Italy this time around so the background is interesting right the um men- the, the the authors mentioned the uh, known coexistence really of RDS right with feeding intolerance and that for neonatologists that's that's a big challenge you you talk about this in the context of non-invasive respiratory support that could affect feeding intolerance through several mechanisms right i mean in you, you put a baby on on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation for RDS and number one the pressurized gas flows uh, intended for RDS is transmitted to the GI tract causing gaseous distension the the famous cpap belly right second you have the gaseous distension that makes its way all the way down into the intestines and it could generate mucosal infl- in inflammation because of cytokine release. And this is sort of what's been observed uh, during episodes of neck and basic science experiment. You also are providing them with oxygen, which basically this oxygen enriched air mixture can induce potentially dangerous imbalances in the intestinal microbi- microbial flora. And the pressure induced by the... Um, by the CPAP and so on, could affect gastric emptying, gastroesophageal reflux, and mesenteric flow. So with all these concerns that we are all all too familiar with, the question they're asking is, what are the comparative effects of CPAP versus high-flow nasal cannula in high-risk preterm infants uh, with respiratory distress syndrome on feeding intolerance? They call it throughout the paper, the heated humidified high-flow nasal cannula. I'm just going to call it high-flow nasal cannula. Sorry, my friend. Yeah. I thought it was like a typo. I'm like, oh, they added two more H's. Ah. <laughs> but obviously, no, that was me. Uh, the study is a randomized clinical trial that involved infants who were born between 2018 and 2021 in one of the 13 participating NICUs across Italy. And the inclusion criteria were babies who um, were born with a gestational age between 25 and 29 weeks. Uh, who were seven days of life or less, um, who um, were being started on some form of enteral feeding, they were taking at least uh, less than 75 ml per kilo per day, and and babies who had RDS. How did they define RDS? Basically, respiratory failure that requires some form of respiratory support, um, and surfactant was administered according to the European guidelines for the management of RDS. They excluded babies who had neurological, surgical disease, sepsis, chromosomal anomalies, and major malformations. And so the intervention was interesting. So they randomized babies to either receiving nasal CPAP or high-flow nasal cannula. Now, the initial suggested setup for the non-invasive respiratory support was CPAP between five and seven centimeters of water, or a high-flow nasal cannula between four and seven liters per minute. But this had to be achieved after what they called a stabilization test. So basically in the first 48 hours, they had uh, to basically make sure that they were not going to need like intubation or anything like that. So they had to go through 48 hours where their sats were between 90 and 95, that their co 2s remained around 60 or less, that the RFIO2 remained below 40%, that they had like a silverman Anderson score for RDS um, of uh, six or lower. And that their apnea hypopnea index of two events per hour or fewer with CPAP or high cannula. So they have a, like all that pretty well outlined, and I thought that was pretty reasonable. And then they recorded nutritional data until they reached full enteral feeds. Now the thing that's important is that each NICU that participated had its own protocols for the clinical management of patients enrolled in the study, and so uh, there was no real criteria for the management of enteral nutrition and for the management of uh, non-invasive respiratory support. The advancement of feeding was really up to the clinician, but they did set an upper limit at 30 ml per kilo per day, right? They didn't want to cause feeding intolerance by on a kid that you advanced feeds by 60 or something. The infants were bolus-fed by NG or OG tubes, breastfed or bottle-fed um, based on the infant's cueing and capabilities. Now, the interruption of feeding was defined uh, by signs of feeding intolerance from uh, an abdominal an, abno- an, ab- an abnormal abdominal exam, uh, some gastric residual volume measurements, uh, either over 100% of the previous feed, bilious aspirates, bloody aspirates, and then fecal aspirates, which sounds terrifying. Uh, Vomit or regurgitation, abnormal stool, and other cardiorespiratory events. The primary outcome of the study is the time that it took babies to reach full enteral feeds, defined as an intake of 150 ml per kilo per day. The secondary outcomes, uh, there, there was a lot of them. So there are secondary nutritional outcome, which were the median daily enteral increments, at least the one episode of feeding interruption, uh, episode of feeding interruption lasting more than 24 hours, uh, pathological residual volume, frequent vomiting or regurgitation, abdominal distension, time to reach full oral feeding and growth. Then they had secondary respiratory outcomes, uh, which were the number of days assigned to non-invasive respiratory support. Um, The number of patients who required more invasive respiratory support, whether that was mechanical ventilation and so on. The number of patients who changed group, the number of patients who were weaned from respiratory support, um, and some other stuff that you can look at the paper and and see. Uh, Comorbidities occurred after randomization, um, such as neck, BPD, pneumothoraces, IVH, sepsis, PDA, uh, ROP, and length of hospitalization. And mortality were also evaluated as secondary outcome. The study was done with an intention-to-treat approach, considering enrolled patients until discharge. So far, so good, Daphne, About this, uh, so interesting paper. I think it's a it's a very hot topic about the use of high-flow nasal cannula and CPAP. Uh, no, no, no real mention, right? I mean, I know we're talking about doing a mini series on this topic uh, for the podcast, but no mention of the interface. Like, so we don't That's know. Right. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, so that was not really specified. I haven't combed through, so I, ch- I got discouraged to comb through the supplemental material because I downloaded it and it's in Italian, and I was like, I could put it through the the translation, but that would have been a real commitment. I know I'm procrastinating a, procrastinating a little bit for this for this particular journal club, so. Please, I apologize if I didn't have time to run the uh, supplemental material through the translation algorithm to get them in English so that I could read them. So I apologize. Um, Okay, so the results of the study. 475 infants were eligible uh, for inclusion. Uh, 35.4%, 168 of them, were not able to undergo the stability test. And so they were excluded. Uh, They performed the stability test, you know, these 48 hours, making sure they're okay on about... 80% of them of whom passed, so that's 247, um, and who were randomized. So basically, at the end of the day, they had 122 kids in the CPAP arm, 125 kids in the high-flow nasal cannula arm, all right? So 122, 125. Um, The infant's median gestational age uh, was 28 weeks. Uh, In terms of the baseline characteristics um, some interesting things that I noted, they were a bit more C-section, 70% versus 63% in the high flow group. Um, the gestational age, the birth weight were very similar. Um, also interesting things about like, there was no real difference in in how early the babies maybe started feeds. Um how much they were taking at recruitment. So like when they enrolled the kids, most of them were taking like 20 to 30 ml per kilo. So so not so much. And impressive data on the percentage of kids who were exclusively fed human milk, 79% in the uh, CPAP group and 80% in the high flow group. Uh, same thing for surfactant therapy, 52% in one group, 56% in the other group. And uh, that's really it. Now, in terms of the primary outcome, so the estimates of full enteral feed probability showed no difference between the two groups. And we'll post that graph on Twitter. The median time to reach full enteral feed was 14 days in the CPAP group and 14 days in the high flow nasal cannula group. When they tried to stratify this data by gestational age to see if maybe smaller kids did different things compared to older, more mature kids, um, there was no difference. So then there's interesting data when it comes to the secondary outcome, and I'm going to go through a few things. So there's no, there were no difference between the two groups in the risk of having at least one episode of feeding interruption. There was no difference in having at least one episode of feeding interruption lasting more than 24 hours or one episode of pathologic gastric residual volume. Um, there was also no difference in having at least three episodes of vomiting or regurgitation in a day. Uh, and to have a pathologic uh, ab- uh, physical exam or abdominal exam, uh, and the probability of having like m- uh, at least one cardiorespiratory event. Now, risk and relative risk secondary uh, of secondary nutritional outcomes are reported in the table, and they didn't find any difference in the mean daily increment uh, of, for weight based on whether the babies were on CPAP or high flow. The mean time to reach full oral feeds was similar for both nasal CPAP and high flow group. Um, That was uh, 49 days versus 48 days. Um, What else can I tell you? Weight growth between randomization and time to reach full enteral feeds was similar between the two groups. And um, let's talk a little bit about now some of the respiratory stuff, because I think that was interesting. And also telling us something about how we manage RDS in the NICU. So between randomization and the time to reach full feed, 83 infants, which is about 68% of the nasal CPAP group, had to change or discontinue their assigned CPAP. That was uh, 76 infants or 60% in the hyphronasal cannula group. So less so, which is which is quite interesting. Now, if you if when they dig further into this data, what they found was that at the first change of support. of the infants who were treated with with CPAP compared to 23% of the kids who were treated with high flow actually required more support. So when you look at them changing, right, the high flow group are the ones who, when they change, they were more likely to need more support, which goes back to this eternal discussion of saying, are we giving enough PEEP with the high flow nasal cannula? What they also noted was that the change was needed at a at a at a mean of seven point three days later in the CPAP group, compared with three point seven days in the high flow group, which means that they failed uh, sooner on high flow. Does that make sense? Um, okay, a few more things, and then I can we can call it a day for this paper. Um, how quickly did they get better? That's another interesting finding. So. 58% in the CPAP group versus 46% in the high flow group had improvement and discontinuation of any respiratory support within a mean duration of like five days for the CPAP group and nine days for the high flow group. The number of patients who switched due to their inability to tolerate the respiratory interface was higher in the CPAP group compared with the high flow group. So that, that discussion about the interfaces is there in the results, but they don't really go into too much more detail. Um, a few more things, there were no difference that were observed between the groups in the frequency of BPD, ROP, sepsis, and uh, pat- patent ductus arteriosus between the two groups. And the length of stay was actually similar between the group 64 days versus 63.5. Um, and obviously, the big limitation of the study is that while it is randomized, very difficult to blind clinicians. To, uh, to this intervention. So the conclusions are that there's no difference in feeding intolerance between infants in the nasal CPAP and high flow nasal cannula group, although so, some short-term respiratory outcomes were better with nasal CPAP. Now, the findings, according to the authors, suggest that clinicians should tailor respiratory care by choosing and switching between the two techniques on the basis of their respiratory efficacy and patient compliance, regardless of the possible effects on feeding intolerance. So I think it dispels, right? It dispels something that we've that we've all been concerned about, which is is that gonna cause issues with feeding if I have them on CPAP uh with more better peep delivery and so on. Um so a very interesting paper. Yeah. Totally agree. Um and yeah, it was a as you said, a hot topic on on Twitter. It's mm-hmm. just a reminder that we we're discussing papers all the time on Twitter, you know? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nicupodcast or through our website,